Why is writing TV better than writing movies? Television is the place for innovation now. It's the most exciting area for people who want to create originally. I know that's in contradiction to uh, the tradition where people thought, well, independent films was me expressing my voice and my idea. Actually, television has so much opportunity now that there are many, many ways to tell your story or to tell any story. And I think just the plethora of opportunity is part of what makes it great. The other thing that makes it great is that you can do the long narrative. That uh, in writing a movie, if it's a two-hour movie, your story really has to end in 90 minutes or 120 minutes, or even if it's a little bit flexible from that. With television, you can tell a six-hour story, an eight-hour story, a 13-hour story, a 26-hour story, or a story that lasts 100 hours. And that means that you can expand vertically. By that, what I mean is not that the plot goes on and on, but that the depth of character is something that you can continue to reveal. And uh, secrets keep coming out over the many, many hours of a show. And it's a different kind of creating. It's a little bit more like life in the sense that life doesn't end in two hours or it doesn't end when a plot comes to the point that something concludes or finishes. It's, uh, it's the continuity of experience and uh, all of that is some of what uh, television offers now. And then I guess the, the only downside would be that you would have to test your story to make sure that it does have legs to be more than 90 minutes. Well, in creating a show, uh, a te an episodic television show as opposed to, for example, a movie, movie for television or even a limited series. Um, in doing a longer s series, what you need to do is conceive of it at the beginning to make sure that it has legs and springboards. And by that I mean that the story uh, has a potential to continue having generating other stories as it goes along, mostly propelled by the, the characters in the cast. Uh, springboards also means that uh, each episode, whether it's an hour or a half hour or whatever length it is, uh, needs something that springs it forward. Uh, whereas in a movie you might have, you know, a continuous uh, plot that starts with you know, whatever the uh, inciting moment is at the beginning, has a certain number of plot points or changes, and comes to a conclusion. And that's really too simple for what television is. So the, the complexity uh, is something you bring to it uh, from the very, very start. It's not something you find later. How is writing a television show different from writing a movie? Writing for television is uh, faster, and more specific in terms of getting the uh, internal motor going for the characters. Uh, the process, if you're on an actual show, uh, does have to do with deadlines. You have to write fast enough that if you are doing multiple episodes of a show that you're on schedule. So the idea of uh, the uh, artist in the garret waiting for a muse to strike is not going to work if you're writing for television. Uh, you really have to turn out the work. Uh, 
I find that that's actually energizing to uh, the creative process rather than deadening. I think the idea that somebody is waiting for what you have and that there's a lit, just that little bit of pressure on you to deliver sometimes helps you actually get to work and to pull out what you need to do. Uh, writing for movies, I, I don't know how much this industry even exists anymore. There are two ways that people write for movies now. One is that you're on a blockbuster franchise, and that's, I, that's writing, but it's writing to a formula that is somebody else's. And it is also uh, means you're part of a team, which is essentially director and producer driven, or sometimes even star driven, so that you're, uh, the chance for you to exercise your creativity is, uh, is within those parameters. I wouldn't say it's gone, it's never gone. You can always give whatever you can and bring whatever you can to the story and the characters. But I find that, uh, to me, uh, that's limiting. The other kind of writing for, for movies or theatrical features uh, is the indie process. Uh, the indie process is not a business. The indie process means you need to finance your own material and you go to the art festivals. Uh, the end product of doing indie films is that you might get hired to work on television. Uh, because there is not much business there. In other words, uh, how many people are going to see some small indie film, unless you can get it on Netflix, because now the uh, boundary between what is a movie and what is television is, is certainly graying, if not eroding completely. Uh, almost all of the uh, premium outlets are doing uh, what I call the shorter form, which is the two-hour form or even 90-minute form, uh, as well as much longer. In fact, things are in all sorts of sizes now. You can get uh, a half hour, you can get an hour, you can get two hours, you could get uh, more rarely three hours or four hours, but they happen. Six hours for a limited series. Uh, eight hours is common for an entire season. 12 and 13, it's common for an entire season. There are no more 22-hour seasons, really. Um, and then it goes on to the next year. So you might easily get 36 hours of storytelling on television. Uh, in a movie, you have the time to, uh, that you might need to do your work. Uh, if you want to spend three months or six months or two years writing one film, uh, you can do that because it's your own unless you're being hired. In other words, if you're just doing your own personal movie. Uh, if you're being hired, you're back on your schedule again and uh, the next episode of you know, Batman or Spider-Man, if you're so lucky to get on those big franchises, uh, is due at a certain date. So it sounds like then really the only way the artists can sort of be their own driver and sort of work, as you said, in this garret waiting to be discovered is an art house type film because uh, television or or uh, tentpole movies it's a it's a collab it's a it's yeah. by committee in a sense uh, no actually um, yes if you want to do art house films anybody can do that you're in the fundraising business if you do that you must understand that uh, it is in a sense less free because so much of your time is spent raising money and then marketing um, 
But no, I think that the most artistically creative thing you could do is an original television series uh, or even a certain series that are may not be yours, but that give you a great deal of freedom in terms of uh, evolving the characters and the storylines. Uh, if you look at something like Atlanta, Donnie Glover's show, uh, or, or you look at something like Handmaid's Tale, which is, of course, based on a book, uh, or any number of other things, Orange is the New Black, uh, the, the list is long. There is very little in the theatrical feature arena that is as incisive and challenging and original as some of the work on those shows. So uh, to me, now this is just my own bias. I know there are people who feel differently. My own bias is that for originality, creativity, and uh, exploration, you really can't beat what's happening on television now in all of its forms if you increase it to really all of the forms. But one maybe should test themselves, how well do they work in groups? No, I mean, yes, yes. If you're on the staff of a show, if you're on a staff, it is collaborative. That's true. Uh, if you're so fortunate as to be in a writer's room, uh, you will be around a table uh, all day, every day, with uh, four or five or seven or ten or however many you have, fellow writers and producers, um, creating material. You then go off and do your own individual episode and bring that back to the room. Uh, so in that sense, it's a little bit like a writer's workshop uh, where, yeah, you get the general structure of what you're supposed to do for that episode in the group. You go do it. When it comes back, you're going to get notes from collaborators. Uh, you hope, and in the best shows this is true, uh, that these collaborators are all uh, building together to make your episode shine. Uh, so there should be, ideally, no sense of competition or, you know, tearing anybody down. It's all a matter of in service to the best possible work and in service to the show. And ultimately, yes, the showrunner's vision. Uh, but not everything is, is like that. If you look at the uh, work at uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, whether that's Killing Eve or uh, Fleabag or other things she's done, uh, for the woman's point of view, uh, coming alive on screen, I can't think of much anything anywhere that delivers that quite as well as she has done with her television series. Well, if you look at something like Breaking Bad or, or Better Call Saul, Vince Gilligan's uh, worlds that he has created are so character-rich that uh, it doesn't even matter if these guys are drug pushers or criminal lawyers or whatever. Uh, we love them. We're rooting for them. And that's, that is such a strength. Uh, and it comes from the writer. How fast do you have to write a television script versus a movie script? Generally, if you're on the staff of a show, from the time that your outline is locked, now we're talking about a process until you get that outline done. So there's been a pitch, there's been a story discussion, there's been a structuring, there's been an outline, there's been a revised outline. So 
starting from that moment, which is at that point weeks in, uh, you might have two weeks or three weeks to write a script. Depending on the show, uh, that's the traditional rhythm. But there are shows that uh, package up entirely before they ever shoot. And if they're going to do it a whole season in advance, you might have more time. A movie script, if, it's, if you're doing it on your own, take the rest of your life if you want. I mean, who cares? Um, but again, if you're working for a producer who has commissioned it, you will have a deadline. The deadline might be, depending on the, the nature of it, you might have a month or two. Uh, but I find that students, especially uh, writing first scripts, need much longer. Uh, my students who write uh, scripts at uh, USC might take an entire semester of four months to finish a draft and then another semester of another three or four months to polish that draft. Uh, that's luxurious and it's because they're students and they're getting feedback. Uh, if you work at that pace in the industry, I think they'd be considered very slow. And is that something that your students are very aware of, that it is actually, you're giving them more time than maybe they would have had they be? Yeah, no, they higher. know. Uh, they know, and they're, um, you can tell them, but that's different. It's one thing to be told. It's another thing to be in, in the midst of the world where somebody says, okay, go home. I want to see our first draft in two weeks. And, you know, are they going to panic? They shouldn't panic. If they have, if they have the tools that they've been given, you can, you can easily do an hour in two weeks. Um, my, when I was doing those kinds of things, my pace was always that I would, uh, if you think of an hour as being eh, maybe 28 scenes, maybe less, depends, um, and if you think about it, if you write two scenes per day, and that's not very much, really. That's, you know, maybe four to six pages per day. It's all you're writing. Uh, but if you do that for, two, for 14 days, at just, at just even two scenes per day, you've got your 28 scenes in two weeks, and you could do it faster. Uh, so it's not a it's not a burdensome schedule really at all. How does a writer decide if their story will be more effective as a film or a television series? All stories that mean something to audiences are based on human beings. There is no storytelling that is not character driven. So the special effects approach. Uh, whether that's superheroes or fantasy action adventure, uh, might be fun for a big screen uh, and the audience, which tends to be uh, adolescent boys. Um, and if what you want to write is uh, special effects-laden uh, fantasy action adventure, uh, or any other kind of um, big action panorama, you're much better off with a movie if that's what you want to do. But if what you want to write are stories involving human beings, 
and their relationships and their issues, whether that's personal or political or whatever it is, or historical or contemporary, uh, if it's based from character, uh, I don't think you're going to find a lot of uh, takers in the uh, movie industry uh, on the studio level because what used to be small films or personal films or, uh, or dr dramas, character dramas, are not easy to finance because they don't know how they're going to make their money back unless, of course, you, maybe you have a big star involved. But even in that case, the star world is no longer what it used to be. There aren't movie stars that can drive a box office like they used to be. So I really think that um, if, if the question is deciding which to write for, it's what is it that you want to write. So you don't think that there's a modern-day Cary Grant? I mean, we just watched No. Uh, no? Do I don't. I mean, there are names that you would know. I mean, Tom Cruise is currently uh, being called the last movie star because he's trying to, you know, reboot his, you know, his flying movie, Top Gun, from the 1980s. I guess 1980s it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, th more than 30, well, it's about 30 years ago or so. Um, we'll come see him now because they're recapturing their youth. I don't know how many of those people are going to the movies, honestly. Um, if you look at somebody like Zendaya, which is uh, from Euphoria on HBO, now she has a following. Now she had a following first as a musician before she did as an actress, and then Euphoria is capturing a certain feeling about high school life, which is not, not accurate, and I have my own ideas about Euphoria, but nevertheless, sure. it is very successful. And she is a star. But she's a star that did not ever work in movies. Uh, she's a television star and a big star, and a bigger star than many of the other names you might see out there. There are wonderful people who are still around, Jane Fonda, for example, and Lily Tomlin doing that wonderful uh, Grace and Frankie. But that's television. Sure, sure. And that was based off a movie, wasn't it? Was there? Wasn't I, there? I don't okay. remember the origin of it, um, but uh, yeah. a lot of things that are on television are based on books or on uh, international uh, materials. Has film versus television evolved further from each other as time has gone on? Let's say it's how the popularity of streaming has emerged and then the cinema experience for whatever reason has maybe gone away. The cinema experience has certainly uh, changed with the closure of theaters. That's partly pandemic related and it's partly financial and it's partly that why go spend that much money for the tickets and the parking and the dinner and the babysitter, if that's something that you know happens to you, um, when you could wait a few weeks and it'll be on Netflix or Amazon or something else. Uh, so I think that the, uh, I noticed that nearby the uh, Landmark Theater just closed in, uh, in the Westside Pavilion. Uh, so exhibition theaters are really, getting to be more like uh, the theaters for plays, where there's special events. 
or, or theaters for concerts, special events where you know you're going out for the night and you're spending a lot of money because it is an experience. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the opportunities for exhibition on television have increased of movies. So in that sense, they're coming together. The only thing is there is a difference of the viewing experience between something in a dark theater on a large screen and something on your home screen or even your computer screen. Uh, televisions and homes, in terms of convergence, many theater screens got smaller for a while so that you could have you know, smaller theaters in multiplexes uh, at the same time as telev home television screens got bigger. So they're almost the same size, almost the same experience. That's changing a bit now as the small screen multiplexes are, are going away. They're just not a, a much of a business model. Um, and more and more people are watching on their computers, even on their phones. If you're watching something, whether it's a movie or a television show on your phone, it's a very different experience because uh, the kind of information you're getting on a screen that size is different, and it tends to complement uh, the experience of intimacy with a character and uh, be not good for panoramic storytelling. Although I have to say personally, nothing beats like a Sunday matinee with maybe three people in the theater. That's wonderful, but imagine it from the... Uh, the theater owner is pointing to you. Those three people are not paying his rent. I know. In fact, we're probably a drain on their. We're probably a negative. Well, they're closing for that reason. Yeah, it's a. It may be luxurious, in the same sense as any private screening is luxurious. Uh, if you talk to the theater owners association, they'll they're all in woe. Sure. Yeah, hopefully, though, some, somehow we figure out a way or it becomes fashionable again in some sense. Well, I think it, it will always be there as an experience in the same sense as going to a theater, going to a concert. Uh, but that puts uh, the pressure on uh, showing blockbusters or, or special events of some sort, and it makes it even harder on the uh, small independent personal film which will have you know, very, very little in the way of an audience. So, uh, so those films will do fine on television because actually uh, if you're dealing with a small personal indie film that tends to be character-driven anyway, well, that's what television is. And there's no reason that people can't uh, tune in for something that is just 90 minutes long, and they do. Your book right here, this is something that's required reading for some of your students? Oh, uh, it is required reading throughout the industry. I sometimes go into uh, offices and I find this on uh, executive desks, and sometimes uh, I've heard that uh, the mentorship programs uh, for developing uh, new writers on, uh, on television uh, are requiring this for uh, the mentees coming in. And yes, my students all read this at USC. Uh, it's, it's kind of the Bible of the industry for how to write for television. And uh, this is the fourth edition. Uh, the reason 
it's the fourth edition, is that television keeps growing and changing. Uh, the very first edition of this book came out in 2005, I think, and you can imagine how different the world was. That was before streaming, uh, and it was out of date on publication. Uh, and uh, I've, every few years, I do another version. This is the end of 2018, and after this, more has happened. So this book has everything in it. Great. Yeah, so, so when you were writing it, I guess Netflix was mailing out DVDs. No, uh, 2018, uh, it was after that. Oh, oh, I, I meant the first, I'm sorry, I should oh, rephrase that. Oh, the, the earlier one. No, and uh, Netflix wasn't even mailing them out at the time. Uh, the only thing in 2005, uh, there was still the, the uh, four legacy networks is all, uh, plus HBO. And HBO uh, had only been in business, you know, four or five years. Uh, AMC was doing some very interesting things, uh, but Breaking Bad hadn't yet come on. And uh, everything, everything changed after that. Everything changed. There was a four-act structure required in 2005 of uh, everything, and that has changed. So the world has moved on uh, in a, in fascinating ways. You say that once streaming hit, it changed everything? Streaming changed everything because it allowed people uh, to make more choices. It also allowed more production. It also broadened the idea of the structure of television because uh, way back in the earlier 2000s uh, and before that, uh, everything was in a four-act structure on television because it had to allow for advertising every uh, 13 minutes or so. So you would divide your 60 minutes into roughly four acts, roughly four 15-minute segments. They weren't really exactly 15 minutes, but something like that, so that there could be a commercial break at the end of each one. And then there was a teaser Generally, this traditional, traditional structure, which I'll tell you, is a teaser. Uh, well, let me start that again. The traditional structure was the uh, show's title with even a theme song. Then sometimes there was a small commercial even right away. And then there's the teaser. Uh, anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes, which uh, literally teases the action or sometimes in a procedural would give you the crime or the case to be solved. Then there'd be a commercial. Then you'd go into act one, which would go to roughly 18, 20 minutes, 18, 20 pages. Then there'd be a commercial. Act two would go to roughly 30-ish pages this is traditional, act break. Uh, act three, which is the uh, worst case, the climactic encounter, uh, would go to roughly page 45-ish. And then act four would go to the end and would be slightly shorter, would probably be 57, 58, or 55 minutes. And then there'd be another act break. Uh, and, and another uh, commercial. Then it got longer, 
And in uh, 2006, uh, ABC decided that they wanted to go to six acts in order to stick, stick in more commercials. Uh, and so you ended up with a very long act one, so the people wouldn't lose you, and then they break act six into uh, act, act four into four and five, and then there would be a tag after the final act, which sometimes led into the next week, um, and they would get more commercials in. And this just got worse and worse and worse and worse, uh, where there were uh, some shows on traditional networks that had almost more commercial material than dramatic material. Uh, and people got fed up. Uh, one of the things about streaming is that there were no commercials. The minute there were no commercials, you no longer had, not only did you no longer have that structure, but you had actually more airtime. You had more flexibility of telling stories. Now, HBO always had no commercials, and the same was true of Showtime. Uh, now you can get AMC with or without commercials, but I watched Better Call Saul uh, the other day as, it's, as it ran on television as opposed to seeing it streaming, and I was appalled that this wonderful storytelling kept being interrupted by trying to sell me something. Um, and I, the same thing's true of Hulu. Uh, where you could buy it with or without commercials, you just pay more if you don't have the commercials. I can't imagine watching Handmaid's Tale, uh, you know, disturbed every several minutes by selling me something. Uh, and I just don't, I just won't watch anything that way uh, if I can avoid it. So uh, that's part of the big change. It changed structurally, but it also changed the kind of material. And it changed the way people watched and the, and the number of choices people could make. And I'm sure that encourages binge viewing if there's no commercials because you're so set in the story. Well, you can also continue because you know, and they know, they, they the purveyors of these absolutely know that, I think Amazon does this, that after you finish an episode, there's a little ticker thing that says, next episode starts in five, four, three, two, one. Like, no! <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to watch. I, I sat here long enough. Uh, but it's very easy to be glued for a very long time. And by the way, this disabuses the uh, notion that young audiences have such short times, such short attention spans that uh, they will only watch something that's three minutes or 10 minutes long. Uh, it was discovered, because it was tried on YouTube, uh, what would happen if we gave people the option of watching 10-minute acts, that is 10-minute segments, or, uh, and have 12 of them to make a 120-minute movie, or uh, to let them look at all 10, one after another, after another, after another. Everybody watched all 10. Uh, so it's just not true. Uh, it has to do with interest and attention. It doesn't have to do with something's wrong with the brain of, of young people who can't pay attention for more than a few minutes. If they're interested enough, they're there. Sure, and I mean, if you have your morning coffee, I'm speaking more for myself, I'm gonna be more ADD and switch around than if it's later in the day and I'm tired and now I don't have anything more on my plate. My yeah. attention's going to be there, so. Yeah, well, one of the things about streaming is you can watch it at any time. I mean, if, if you're a morning viewer, uh, you could see something that would normally have been an evening show at any time in the day. 
years ago, uh, when West Wing and ER were on, and they always started at uh, 10 p.m., uh, I knew I was going to be watching from 10 to 11 at night. Um, I would rather not watch from 10 to 11 at night, and I would rather see those same shows at 9 or any other time. And now I can. One last thing. You'd said the tag. Forgive me, what is the tag? Oh, uh, a, a, uh, in terms of structure, after you get to your final act, in some shows, uh, not all of them, there's a form where there's an act break or a break of some sort, and then there's more dramatic material. And that extra dramatic material is usually quite short. Uh, it might be one scene or two scenes, maybe three scenes, but not really much longer. And either it does something as a commentary on what that episode was about and twists it, or it just simply starts introducing what's going to be on the next episode. Uh, every show is different. You don't find this sort of thing very much on, uh, on streaming. And so this, we're really, when we talk about act breaks and the four or five or six acts or the number of acts plus a teaser and a tag, we're really, we're really dealing with traditional legacy television. Can you tell us about the four-act grid? In my book here, there is an extensive conversation about, maybe I could find sure. a page here somewhere. Yeah, here's a picture of it, and I, it says, using the grid. And I find, and here is the non-grid uh, analyzing structure from a different point of view. All right, there's some other things. You can find it in the book. Um, I found that even after uh, the traditional four-act structure was abandoned by networks, that as I talked to people who were writing for Netflix or HBO or any other form at all, Amazon, uh, when I talked to seasoned writers, they were all still using it and just dropping out the act break. And the reason they were using it is that it works. It works as a storytelling mechanism, even if it does not need to be something that accommodates advertising. And that was very interesting, that given the option to not use it, plenty of people figured out, gee, I need a form anyway. And you don't just start on page one and go to page 60 or whatever, you know, in a row without having any idea uh, where the, where the changes are, where the emphasis are, where the energy goes this way or that way. Um, what about cliffhangers? And it was discovered by a number of, of seasoned writers that, you know what? I can go back to the tools that I always used without ever having calling it a break or having an ad. And what it has to do with the rhythm of experience that uh, there is a something, I think there may be something biological in the roughly 15 minute span. If you go to a movie, uh, a movie in a theater, of which there aren't very many anymore, but if you were to go in a movie, in a successful movie in a theater, and you observe, you'd know, you might notice that roughly every 13 to 15 minutes, a little around, uh, the audience squirms. 
And I've observed this several times, and I think it is actually biological. I think people are looking for a change of pace. They're looking for a cliffhanger. They're looking for something that turns the action in another direction in what uh, some people have called a plot point, though you don't need to use that terminology. And uh, I think there is something to ri the rhythm of writing. Uh, in fact, if you look at the traditional three-act structure, the, the old Sid Fields three-act structure, uh, which wasn't invented by Sid Fields, it predates him by a long time, but anyway, um, that structure said that act one, act one was one quarter of the time, act two is two quarters of the time, half, and act three is one quarter of the time, and that's how the three acts work. They're not three even acts. The second act is double. But if you draw a median line down the middle of that second act, uh, which is often where the uh, mid-story character comes in and where there's a big change, you're back to, you've got four acts. <laughs> and so you're still back to the same thing. Now, it plays out differently in 100 minutes than it would in 60 minutes, but not that differently. Um, and so people experiment with what Netflix will tell you and what HBO will tell you uh, is don't talk to me about act breaks. Uh, write what the story needs. Write it whatever length the story needs to be, and we'll deal with it. And I think that's wonderful as a very generous way of approaching writers. The writer still has to go home and structure the story. So what the story needs to be still needs turns, still needs anticipation, still needs what used to be called plot points, uh, still needs a motor that uh, drives to certain kinds of flips and, uh, and still needs some sort of re resolution. So you find yourself back with some of the most traditional uh, lessons in how to write uh, as you write for even the most advanced television. So for the outlining process, if we were to tell someone don't worry about plot structure, that could throw it off. It sounds like this is very necessary. No, I, I, I make my students write very, very structured outlines. Uh, they can... Um, I never say don't don't worry about plot structure. I ask them what is your story and where are the turns and twists and when do they occur? And they'd better know that before they start washing around in a script that's an unknown length going in unknown directions. So no, that doesn't happen. I, I believe in, a, uh, in what I was taught, uh, which was that you get a locked outline, that you get a really good outline. And if your outline tells the story well as driven by the characters and has enough cliffhangers and twists and surprises and anticipation, your script will be easy to write. If you're, if you're sweating your script, it's because there was something wrong with the outline. That'll get a lot of comments because there's two, you know, of course, you know, there's people very resistant to it. <laughs> no, Nobody excellent. likes to write outlines. Outlines are, uh, you know, I, with my students, I tell them when the outlines are done, you're out of outline jail because they're no fun. They don't give you a chance to show off your ability of dialogue or description. They're not beautiful. 
their engineering. And creative people might want to resist. Oh, no, you're going to, you know, make it too rigid. Actually, it's freeing. It's freeing. If you know where you're going, you can go there very well. If you're lost, uh, you have a hard time making anything work out. What are the different structures for television? Television usually exists as half hours, hours, and uh, limited series. Within that, there's some flexibility. Uh, the half-hour form, which used to be limited to sitcoms and really isn't anymore, um, really only runs 20, 22 minutes. It's very short. Uh, but how is that divided? Well, some people used to say the comedy structure was, uh, you know, three beats up, three beats down with a whoops in the middle. I don't think that holds anymore. Uh, there are comedies that are in three-act structure, standard three-act structure. There are comedies that are in four-act structure. There are comedies that are, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and, um, and they can all work because they're uh, propelled by the characters and the kind of material and the kind of humor, if there is humor. Half hours are also not only comedy. Uh, more half hours are dramedy now, or what you might call as uh, simply half hour dramas. And that's different also. If you look at something like Atlanta, uh, which is not bound by uh, legacy structure that it has to fit within a half hour plus ads, which brings it down to like a 20 minute show, you might have a 40 minute episode. And HBO is perfectly happy to have that happen. Um, of coming away from comedy, which is not my specialty, uh, hours are depends where you, where you look. Um, an hour might be more than an hour uh, on uh, on HBO, or it might be a full hour and even a little more on HBO or Netflix, or even Amazon. Um, it might be much less than it might be uh, on legacy television. It's forty some odd minutes, because they're allowing for the commercials. So it varies. And then the limited series uh, are all different. If you look at something like um, Ava DuVernay's uh, "When You See Us," that's uh, six hours, uh, brilliant six hours. Most of those hours are one hour long, but sometimes. I think one of them, if I recall, the beginning one was two hours long. Um, and you often see that in the, uh, in the um, I, I don't want to say miniseries, in the limited series, you'll often find that one of those hours is a two-hour segment. Uh, they call it special. It's also called as, you know, finishing the show. Um, but are they an hour long? Yeah, mostly, kind of. Mostly, kind of. They have to fit on the schedule. Um, Game of Thrones was often not an hour. It was more. Uh, uh, Handmaid's Tale is less because on Hulu it shows with commercials. So if you're, if you're working on a show, you have to look at that show and see how they work. And then Better Call Saul... You Better said, Call Saul's uh, AMC. 
and AMC has commercials, and uh, it could certainly, it certainly has the depth uh, to go for an hour, but it doesn't. It runs more like 50 minutes. What's the difference between a five-act and a six-act structure? Well, I, first of all, don't really believe in, in act structures so much anymore. I, I really like to look at the four-act structure as a basis, and the five-act structure is a four-act structure with the fourth act divided in half. Uh, six acts uh, sometimes is those five acts, and then you add a tag, which is some extra material. But there's also another way of doing it, which is that every act is a little shorter. Um, I, don't, I don't recommend anybody writing a spec episode in six acts. Uh, I really think that if somebody out there is watching this in order to learn how to write a sample, a spec sample script, which is required by many of the fellowships, uh, that you should really go with the four act plus teaser or no acts at all. Uh, the six-act structure is clumsy uh, because it keeps breaking, first of all, and then also the reader anticipates it's going to be ending, and then, oh, wait a minute, here's another piece. So I, I don't think anybody should do that. And so for a first-time spec writer uh, submitting something, should they stick to an hour? Well, yeah, if they're doing drama, they have to stick to an they hour. They have to, okay. I mean, if you're a comedy writer that's different, uh, then uh, clearly you will write a comedy uh, sample. And that's that's another world altogether. It's, it's, if, it's, uh, if it's taped, I mean, if it's multicam, not too many people are doing that anymore. But if it's a multicam sitcom in the old-fashioned sense, it's probably going to be... Uh, in a different page format as well. You have to look, you'll look that up. Uh, whereas dr dramatic scripts and uh, live action filmed comedies look like feature films. Can you explain A, B, and C stories? Uh, a, B, and C stories are parallel stories that are not subplots. Uh, in dramatic shows especially, uh, you will have major full plots that are linked to uh, primary characters. S uh, the A story generally has more beats. The B story may have the same number of beats or fewer, and the C story sometimes a runner. Uh, it's just a way of thinking about storytelling uh, when you have s the kinds of narrative that lap over from episode to episode. So you might have an A story in uh, episode five, which is actually continues in episode six as a B story uh, and comes back to being an A story in episode seven, and you might have it weaving. So the B story, which is also very important, but not the prominent one in episode five, really has a major turn in episode six. So you're, you're weaving throughout the season as well as weaving within your episode. That isn't to say the episode can't stand alone, because it should, but um, that's, that's what parallel storytelling is. <laughs> it's just multiple narratives. They are not subplots to each other. They are full stories. Could we try using that with an example of something, maybe Better Call Saul? Uh, Better Call Saul might have uh, Jimmy Saul um, as the A story. Uh, Kim, his wife, 
might have a separate arc in that show, even though she also intersects with him. But there also might be a story for Nacho, uh, which uh, doesn't even include Saul or Kim and takes place at a different, it takes place in Mexico, is in a different place, a different time. Uh, well, the same time usually, but a different location with different characters. Uh, they all impact each other and there's usually a thematic link, but they're actually separate stories in themselves. Um, if you look at the precursor, Breaking Bad, Walter White uh, will have a story. Uh, would uh, Jesse have a separate story with different characters? Maybe, maybe. Um, Walter's... In Breaking Bad, Walter White really was the dominant person. But there were there, there are other characters who might have scenes that he isn't in and might have a number of beats that tell whatever their arc is for that show. How do you stretch out an idea over multiple episodes without it feeling too drawn out? You never stretch an idea. There is no such thing as an idea that stretches. There's only a story that needs to be told. Um, if you find that your material is too short, that the story you have uh, does not last for an hour or for whatever length of time, uh, you need to think about your story and who these people are and what more needs to be told. Never stretch and never shrink. Um, I've seen people, I've seen students do things that are just silly, uh, which is uh, to work with the final draft to make more space between letters to make it look bigger or take out space to make it, that doesn't fool anybody. Plus, it won't work because when you actually make the show, it's gonna be the length it is, so that's silly. Uh, if you find that you don't actually have enough story, you can do a few things. One is go back into your characters and ask, are there layers of this character that I have not yet examined? Go back into your secondary characters and say, is there more to them? Are they too superficial? Do they have arcs or stories in themselves that could become a B story? Uh, is there a different place to end my story? Am I, if it's too short, uh, have I stopped before it really concluded? Or more likely, have I failed to develop the middle? Uh, generally, people who are, are lacking material are lacking it in the middle. They think they're lacking it at the end and they need to go on. And that's never the, that's rarely the truth. Uh, sometimes uh, I have found um, early scripts that don't start in the right place. Uh, the general notion is to start as close to the action as possible. So you wanna start as late as possible. But uh, there are a number of instances where you really need to know uh, what led, what caused this story, and they needed to back up and add essentially a whole act for what happened before or what propelled the character. So they were missing something. Never stretch, never, never fool with it. The idea and the story tells itself.
So a better problem to have is how can I condense this into right. this form? Uh, you, you might say a better problem is how to condense it if you need to hit an hour, if you need to hit 60 minutes. And if, if it's running too long, there are a few things you can look at. Um, the simplest is are your dialogue speeches too long? Uh, and that's a common error that uh, people are just simply over-talking, that uh, they say, uh, play it, don't say it, you know, is this something we can see visually instead of explaining it, uh, or that you've got exposition that needs to go because it's obvious anyway on screen, or because um, you have uh, indulged in uh, directing on the page or set decoration, so there's just simply too much writing that isn't part of telling the story. So that's an editing thing. Often editing won't, um, if you're way long, it, it won't cut enough pages. I mean, if you're up at uh, 75 pages for something that should be 60 pages, editing might not get you there. Uh, what may be happening in that case is that uh, you've actually strayed from the focus of your story, or that you even have a whole other character or a whole other storyline that needs to be in a new episode. So those are, those are things you can do if you're running long. Um, in general, or sometimes that um, your script was really over and you went on. But you'd have to look at it case by case. Uh, there is, unless you're Aaron Sorkin and you're writing something that's normally 70 pages because it's so dialogue rich that it's running, it's six, 70 pages are gonna run 60 minutes. Um, but unless you're doing that, and you shouldn't be doing that, um, you should get, you should tighten your script to what works within an hour. But if, you're, if your first uh, inclination is how do I stretch this out, then you know that maybe go back to what your, your whole idea is even about, because it sounds like there needs to if, be some If your more. question is, how do I stretch this out, you're asking the wrong question. Um, and you need to go all the way back to who you are as a writer and what is the thing you have to tell. Does every writer need to know how to write a pilot? Yes, every writer needs to write a pilot. Um, first of all, it's the coin of the realm that people who, people meaning agents, producers, uh, even people who are not in the television business, uh, will read a pilot before, the, before they will read anything else. Uh, in a pilot, they get the originality of your voice and your ability to tell the story and how to write uh, in a shorter amount of time than having to slog through 120 pages of a feature film. So they get all of the same advantage uh, in a shorter reading time. The other thing is that a pilot is likely to show uh, a possible producer or fellowship or agent um, that you really understand in a compact way how to deliver for today's audience. Uh, people watch television, they are not looking at movies, so unless you are your goal in life uh, is to uh, write episode 900 of some blockbuster action fantasy adventure. 
Uh, you really need to have a pilot for an original show. It doesn't mean that show will be made. It will not be made. But this is your showpiece. This is your masterwork uh, that will then get you the chance to be on a, on the staff of a show, at which point you can then come back to your pilot and maybe then it'll be made. Uh, but absolutely, pilot writing is is the craft you need. And I would tell any beginning writer that they should have more than one pilot. Uh, one pilot isn't enough. For, for one thing, you learn from every script you write and you just get better and better. Uh, the other is that um, you may find that after your first pilot, which you thought was the story you had to tell, that there's more to you than that. There are more stories to tell. Generally, shows that get bought uh, are built on underlying material. They're uh, built on books or, or movies or other, other underlying uh, assets. So the chance of selling your pilot and getting it made are slight, but it's the thing without which you can't work. So not just one pilot, but several pilots and expect them never to be made. This is your sort of calling card. This is your right. almost resume. That's right. Uh, they might, I mean, they might be made. You can hope they'll be made. Uh, you never want to say to yourself, this will never be made. But they are evidence of craft. They're evidence of voice. Uh, they are who you are as a writer. And... Uh, and who you are should not be one thing. I mean, you can do more than one, and you should. For one thing, they'll get better. What questions should a writer be asking themselves when they're about to embark on a pilot? The question to not ask is, how can I imitate something that has already been successful? That's what to not do. Uh, I know sometimes people say, well, let me game the business. I saw this works, so I'll do 3% of that and five of that, and you know, here, let me do all this, and yeah, I got it, and I'm gonna get rich and famous. This doesn't work. Um, what really works is, uh, is the story that only you can tell. And you, whoever you are, knows that. Generally, writers need to write what hurts. That doesn't mean everything is tragic but it means you are tapping into what you must say because you have such a great need to say it. Now, that can be interpolated in a way that's not personal. You could do that uh, through history, for example, or even through an imaginary character. It doesn't have to be you, but it needs to be something that you need to convey emotionally and psychologically. And if once you know what that is, uh, you can see if there's a way to attach that to something broader than just being your purely personal, intimate tale. Uh, and that can be, as I say, uh, political, social, historical. Uh, it can be anything you'd like it to be. It can have music. It can have visual material. Uh, it can have all sorts of things. But it really needs to come from uh, honesty. And it's... Anybody who reads a lot of scripts can tell right away if something is dishonest. That is, if something is just trying to make a sale. And it's a turnoff. What if somebody doesn't want to go there and they say, well, I don't want to. If, if you don't want to do that, you shouldn't be a writer. You know, go do some other job. 
There are plenty of jobs where you don't have to be introspective or honest in the world. And there are plenty of jobs even in the industry where you don't have to be introspective or honest. Uh, but if you want to be a writer, there's a reason you want to write. It's because there's something you want to write about. There's something you want to say. And I think that's your obligation uh, to the universe as, and to yourself. How much of the world needs to be created in the pilot? All of the world and all of the characters are from the writer. You need to know everything. Nothing is for the director to figure out later. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have uh, assets from the actors who will bring depths and insight into the characters that are beyond what you may have imagined. Uh, the director uh, may also be able to present a scene in a way that amplifies some elements that uh, you only sketched in. Uh, the costumes might add something. The location can add wonderful things. So it's a collaborative field, but the writer is the first dreamer among many dreams. And there are, uh, there's a basis in, uh, in knowing what you are dealing with here, and that means creating the entire world. By that, I don't mean specifics of the location. The scout will do that. But you need to understand all of the energies which are in this situation that you're, that you're going for. Uh, and there is no difference between character and world. There are characters that could only exist in the situation where they are. And worlds that will be different depending on the story. Look at all the different medical shows that are not the same medical show. Grey's Anatomy does not look like House and neither of them looks like ER. Uh, they're all medical shows, but they are different worlds because the world comes from who the characters are. Uh, beyond that, uh, world building as an exercise is really not something I would uh, suggest that writers spend a lot of time dealing with. I have seen people make a mistake of going off into fantasy worlds and you know, decorating characters with feathers and doing things that can only be done with animatronics. And maybe that'll work on some feature films. I, I think it's a waste of time in television. Sure. I mean, if we think back to the original Blade Runner, that world was so unique. Right. And even if you watch the next Blade Runner, it's still beautiful worlds, but there was something about that original world mm -hmm. that just, it, it was almost impossible to recreate. Well, if you look at Game of Thrones, uh, which has seven worlds, <laughs> actually seven locations, very, very different, uh, filmed in different countries, whether you're in Northern Ireland or whether you're in uh, some tropical place or a desert. Um, there's absolutely uh, unique and important locations and different sets of characters in each world who express the sense of those worlds, they are all coalesced within a certain time frame, a certain time in life, a sort of medievalish time, and a certain way that people deal with each other. So that was definitely uh, an extreme case of world building. But again, 
what made Game of Thrones the great success it is? Well, it's because we really were caring about those characters. Yeah, they were great battle scenes. Uh, and it, the worlds were gorgeous. and The costumes were gorgeous. Uh, from George R.R. George R. R. Martin, who wrote the underlying novels, uh, the imagining of the worlds were there from the beginning. So the writer had that from minute one. And then it was just up to everybody else to express that. But uh, no, writers have to, have to do it all. It, this is your world. This is your character. This is your dream. This is your story. So nothing's off the hook of, oh, well, the actor will do that or the director will do that. That's not the case. You will do that.